Today's show is brought to you by TransferWise. If you send money internationally, you know that can be expensive and time-consuming, and the exchange rate you get from your bank can be shocking. So the next time you need to send money internationally, you should use TransferWise. They give you a great exchange rate, so your money goes further, and you pay only one small upfront fee. It's easy, simple, and fast. You know exactly what you're going to pay upfront. You get a real exchange rate, no markup. TransferWise is founded by two friends who happen to be immigrants from Estonia. They were sick of getting ripped off when they sent their money home, so they solved a problem and created a company at the same time. Today, TransferWise lets millions of people and businesses all over the world send money all over the world. See how much money you can save at TransferWise.com. You can also check out their app on Android or iOS. Once again, that's transfer, like I'm going to transfer my money to another country. Wise, as in I'm a smart person who listens to Recode Media. TransferWise.com. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. I'm here with Ryan Holiday, who sells lots of stuff. He's a professional marketer, among other things. Today he's here to talk about, well, he's here to talk about a bunch of stuff. But you got a new book out here, right, Ryan? Perennial Seller, The Art of Making and Marketing Work That Lasts. Sounds easy. Yes. Done. How do you do it? So the what I'm fascinated by, in publishing, obviously, the trend is always bestsellers, but the vast majority, especially in the nonfiction space of of books hit a list for a week and then they sell no copies in week two, three, four. But the vast majority of the income for the publishing industry, which is a $70 billion a year industry, comes from books that are a the year tale. or two years old. Yes. Right? Yes. The reason they can have an office in Manhattan is because The Great Gatsby sells. Right. Not so much the tale, but the catalog. And yes. that works the same way in music. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, 2015 was the first year that catalog outsold all new releases. So your premise is I'm going to help you figure out how to make and then sell something that will sell in perpetuity, or at least for a long time, and make you a lot of money. My premise is that these are the underexplored assets in publishing in general. It's what I try to write as an author myself. You, try to, I, you try to write The Great Gatsby? No, I try to write books that are going to make it to the backlist, because most books don't even make it to week two. Right. Um, so I've tried to write books that last, and then when I work with clients, I've worked with all sorts of authors, I, I'm trying to push them towards lasting, period. You know, uh, and, and the problem is, the vast majority, not even though the vast majority of the income in the publishing industry comes from these titles, 90% of the energy or 95% of the energy is towards the front list, towards celebrity memoirs, new diet books, whatever. So it's it's a complete blind spot for authors and the publishing industry and, and really any creative industry. Well, too. we can go a lot of ways with this. But just so I'm clear, yeah. it seems to me that the, the way you become a perennial seller is that you start off at some point as a bestseller, right? There aren't a lot of books that didn't sell well at first but then sold for a long time afterwards. I would say that that's not completely true. I mean, Star Wars gets beaten at the box office by, like, Smokey and the Bandit. But Star uh, Wars was also a giant movie when it came out. There it was big, but but people think that being number one when you come out is in some so way— So we can debate whether Star Wars was enormous or just gigantic, but it was a huge hit when it came out. It changed the movie industry. It wasn't It wasn't an indie film that came in through the side door and we're still watching it 20 years later. No, Pink it, Floyd, it, it, the, the, it wasn't the Dark Shawshank Side of the Moon was a hit at the beginning as well, right? Right. It, it wasn't Shawshank Redemption, but I think people think that uh, your launch is what determines whether you last, but really it's what you accomplish in your launch and what you've created that's going to determine whether that launch is a platform or a spread gives you the ability to spread or not, if that makes sense. Okay. But it's, it's have a hit and then have a hit that lasts. No, I, I actually don't, I don't think that's true because first off, 
Well, literally, there's an argument. Like, I think Somerset Mom says, you know, uh, nothing that is remembered by history was completely forgotten in its own time, right? So I think there is an element of that. Ideally, as a marketer, you want to launch as a hit and then uh-huh. remain a hit. But I think the problem is, you know, most people, you know, fidget spinners are a hit. That doesn't mean they're going to be a hit in right. two years or 20 years. Or next month. Right, or tomorrow. Yeah, depending yeah. on when you hear this. Depending yes. on when you hear this, yes. fidget spinners may already be gone because yes. that was a June 2017 thing. So so I think a, a launch is really important. Like in the publishing industry, the metric we use is like the first 10,000 copies. If you can get to 10,000 copies, you can probably drive positive word of mouth from there. Ideally, you want to get to 10,000 copies in week one um, or in year one. But uh, what matters is do you have the gas to get there, period. And what's So I started reading the book yesterday. All so right. I haven't finished it. And complete transparency here. It's hard to read on the, uh, the PDF version of NetGalley. It's a lousy way to distribute NetGalley books. NetGalley is maybe the worst software for previewing books to the most important audience. If I didn't really, really want to get to that book, I would have given up about four login tries into it. It's, yes. It's pretty miserable. If someone yes. wants to disrupt the, the, the galley business, they should get into it. Yes. Well, um, I, and actually, one of the things I talk about in the book that I think is really important is most people, uh, most creators of all kinds are so scared about pri- privacy or piracy uh, that they put in place ridiculous things like that that prevent you from reaching the kinds of people or the kinds of gatekeepers that you need to sell things. Yeah. It's slightly better than the thing I did last year where I had to go into a publisher's office and read a skim a book for two hours in a glass-walled office so I wouldn't make off with the book. Was it a very important book? Yeah, it was James Andrew Miller's uh, CAA book, which was Ah. great, but it really would have benefited from me reading it instead of skimming it for a couple hours. So anyway, the the portion of the book, your your book that I've read, is it concerns how to make something great. Yes. So just so I understand, if I was to read the entire book, how much of it is spent talking about making something versus marketing something? I think it's a. I think there it's sort of two consecutive marathons is the way that I think about it. So most people, most creators, especially writers that I deal with, they think that writing is the thing for me. Right? I go off in my cave. I come back with my brilliant work of staggering genius, and I hand it over to a marketer. Yes. And actually, they, there are a number of decisions you're going to make in the creative process that are going to more or less determine uh, – are going to have either very large marketing implications or going to determine your ability to sell in the short term or in the long term, right? So who is this for? Yeah. How are you titling? You know, how are you positioning it? What are you making? Um, you know, uh, I, I tell the story in the book, you know, Adele does the demos for uh, for 25 uh, and she hands them to Rick Rubin and he says, like, you can't. You, she thinks she's ready and she's not. Mm-hmm. Right. And the, the reason the, the album's called 25 when it comes out when she's 27 is because she spends another two years rewriting and remaking all those songs. So so these are part of that. that I was that's the first marathon. And then the second marathon is now it's coming out. Uh, how do you make this thing either a hit in the short term or set it up to be a hit in the long term? So this is something that's always confusing to me when I'm reading stuff like yours where you say, you should do this, and here's an example of what happened to Adele. Adele's enormously talented. Yes. Right? So there's things that she did and didn't do that would be useful for people to think about. But if you don't have Adele's talent, it's probably not going to help you that much. Uh, or is there a version yes. where you can take a very meager amount of talent and through sheer willpower – uh, create a thing that is successful. Well, I, I, it obviously 
depends on the lesson that you're taking from it that the story is being set up to tell. But I think in this case, the lesson is universal in that the lesson is you have to attach yourself to someone, you know, you take um, To Kill a Mockingbird, it, it comes in and she spends another year rewriting it. And we see the difference in uh, Ghost Set a Watchman and To Kill a Mockingbird. Obviously, Harper Lee is an extraordinary talent and it's an extraordinary right. subject. But I don't think anyone's hurt by submitting their work to uh, a talented master or editor of that field and then doing the hard work to get it to where you it needs to go to be the best that you're capable of making. So earlier this year, I talked to Derek Thompson, the Atlantic writer. Mm-hmm. He has a book called Hitmakers, mm-hmm. The Science of Popularity. Yes. He's a super smart guy. And as I recall, his main point, we sort of went back and forth. If he had one main point, it's that making something great is one thing, mm-hmm. but distribution is king. It is. There are There are many, many great works and many things that would be hits, but no one gets to hear them, see them, read them. So without distribution without getting them in front of people, it kind of doesn't matter. Yes. Now, do you sync up with that point in, in the book? So so I no. think one of the most insidious myths of any artistic or entrepreneurial field, and Peter Thiel has talked about this, the idea that uh, if you build it, they will come. That's all you need. Sure. It's, it doesn't work that way. Whether you have to uh, get them to come through salespeople, or you have to get them to come through marketing, or you have to have an existing platform that you're launching from, I, I do think that's essential. You know, music is music. I think is different in the sense that, particularly being a singles-driven business now, it's how are you hearing these songs on the radio or whatever with products or books or even movies the word of mouth element is much stronger. And so, um, you know, with a, with a song, to make money on a song, you have to sell millions of copies. With a book, if you sell twenty or 30,000 copies, you're, you're starting to be in hit territory. Yeah, when you, when you see something that's a New York Times bestseller, it's sold several thousand copies, not, not, mi- not millions. Yes, right. yes. Like, if in the music industry, gold is 500,000. Yeah. In the book industry, it's 100,000 or less, probably. So it's a smaller audience that tends to spread things easier. So I, I, I think distribution is essential. I think uh, you know everyone thinks that creating something is going to give them a platform. Ideally, the, you have something that you launch from a platform. And so I got to the part of your book where you said in marketing, it's important that you take ownership of yes. marketing. You can't just hand this to someone. Mm-hmm. You've got to own this. But you also have a marketing business. So presumably at some point you say bring in a pro to help you do this stuff. Well, I mean, look, I'm saying what I try to do in my own career, even if it deprives me of clients in my marketing business. I I would rather be honest than try to sell someone on something. But, um, you know, where where I made my bones as a marketer was as the director of marketing at American Apparel, where we outsourced nothing. We did all of it in house. And the reason that became uh, a company that was. Whose reputation and size far out was outsized compared to its actual business was because we weren't outsourcing it to someone who didn't actually care about any of the things. Right? We also so, had an extraordinary, charismatic, and eclectic and controversial founder. And, and there's a double we side will, of that story. We can talk about that later. We can. But again, that sort of if you say American Barrel was successful because it had really great marketing, you're sort of underselling the point that that it had a very successful product and then a very particular person. At, at sure. The head of that yeah, it's a, I think I, I think it's a confluence of all these factors, certainly. But my point is, the reason it was brilliant at marketing—I'm not giving myself credit for—the reason it was brilliant at marketing is that the same brilliant people making the stuff were also responsible for marketing it, and they didn't see these as 
uh, as one as being an inferior task to the other. And so that's uh, that's the problem. If I is put like, a gun to your head today and say you can make something make something awesome or do an awesome job of marketing it, which one are you going to pick? I'm going to pick make something awesome because over the long term, I think you're more likely than not. You to think find it your will audience. win out? It'll find something somewhere. I, I I tend to think that yes. So what's the? It bends towards truth. I think it we bend it bends towards a meritocracy. But uh, what's that? Uh, uh, that line: uh, the market can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent. You know, I don't want to die penniless like Melville. Um, so that's where the marketing side of things comes in. And you do say in the book, uh, you say, look, if you want to make money quickly, there's lots of other things you can do than, sure. than, it, than making a timeless perennial seller. To- totally. It, you know, the best way to make money in publishing is to have some bombshell book or some be some celebrity. That be attached get- to the O.J. Simpson trial. They, made, they sold a million of those books. Yes. Or, I'm sorry. The millions of dollars were spent acquiring those yes, books. No right. one read any of them. Yes. The vast majority of books never earn out their advance, right? So, and this is true for probably the record industry and any, uh, you know, most VC companies n- never see a return. So th- that's the short term. Um, but if you want to, uh, my thinking is one, you want to look yourself in the mirror in the morning and two, you want to make things that are meaningful and important. Um, every one of, I've done six books, five have earned out their advances. Uh, m- several times over and and one is on the cusp of, the where, last one is doing the, on the, where, on the cusp where have of you made so. most of your you're, you're like 12 years old I'm 30 you? you're yeah. 30 where have you made most of your money so far from the books you sold or from the marketing services you provided uh it's probably 50 50 uh but the but i could stop working on the marketing and the income would stop i could die tomorrow and my son would get royalties from my books What's the biggest mistake you think people who are whose, whose job it is to sell something to me, to promote something to me? What's the number one thing they do wrong? To you as a journalist or to you as a human being? Just, just what's the for, forget the ethics of what they're doing? Sure. Because we'll, again, we'll come back to that. What's the thing they do that is least effective, but well, they do most often? I think the the biggest problem is that it is a separate thing from the making. So it's like I get a crappy product. And it's too late for me to do anything. So I just have to basically trick someone into caring. Right? I have to come up with – I have to bolt on a, an interesting pitch afterwards. And that's that's why I think the – we're talking about American Apparel and the doing it in-house. If you can make them cohesive and collaborative, you can you can go, hey, people are really interested in this. Let's make something. And if I've been toiling around. in my cave or yeah. I've got my store and things are going well and there's a thing I've made that's a value that I think is good. Yes. It's time to actually get it out there. Yes. I want to bring in someone like you. Right. How do I figure out who's good at it, who's full of shit? In the marketing space? Correct. Um, well, I would I would look at uh, not just the like, – you know, everyone's like, here are the things that I've worked on. And half those things probably would have been successful anyway or – you know, it's it's finding – I'm, I'm looking for marketers who have done – who have taken something from nothing to something – Rather than, you know, hey, I worked for GE and GE was already a multi-billion dollar company and I just collected a retainer. So have you done – have you taken something from nothing to something? To me, that's the, that's the sign of a marketer who can, who can do the whole – who has the whole toolkit. You worked with uh, James Altucher. Another, I did, yes. Another Recode Media guest. Yes. Uh, again, he seems like someone who's got that crazy combination of intellect 
is fueled by whatever weird insecurity and whatever crazy motivation he has to go out and and, and also seems preternaturally skilled at sort of presenting himself. He seems like someone who doesn't need your help. What did you do for him? So with James's book, uh, James had done, I think, 11 books before we met, and not a single one had sold more than, you know, a few thousand copies. Um, that was a soup to nuts project. Like, he sat down and was thinking, should I traditionally publish or self-publish? And I want to call my book, I think the, the working title was The Pick Yourself Economy. And that book became Choose Yourself. Uh, we, we, my company and with James edited the book. We published the book with him and then did all the marketing for it. So at literally all, all of it is for that what book. We and have you together. worked on his other stuff, his yeah, newsletters? I saw, and, I saw James yesterday. I, yeah. I helped. Uh, I did. I was a consultant on the launch of his podcast, which has now done you know millions and millions of downloads. He's a good client. He is. Um, so you've also written a book called Trust Me, I'm Lying, Confessions of a Media Manipulator. I want to talk to you about okay. that. I also want to talk to you about Romans mm -hmm. and, and why they're relevant, at least to some portions of, of this country yeah, today. Yeah. We'll do all that in a minute after we hear from this excellent sponsor. Today's show is brought to you by Upside. Stop wasting your time pricing flights and hotels at the same old sites. There's a much better way to buy business travel. The only site you need is Upside.com. Upside is a complete game changer. In less than five minutes, they show you the exact flights you're looking for, all the big-name hotels you'd want to stay at, and here is the upside difference. You bundle your flights and hotels together for one price, you save money, and they reward you with a gift card to places like Amazon every time you buy a trip. Bundling saves your company so much money, and Upside gives you a gift card. We like gifts. Forget about how you used to buy your business trips. Try Upside.com. Right now, when you use the promo code MEDIA, you know how to spell media, you're guaranteed to get at least a $100 Amazon gift card for your first trip. So use the promo code media so they know we sent you to get a $100 gift card free. Go to upside.com. It's the better way to buy business travel. There's a minimum purchase required. See the site for complete details. Today's show is also brought to you by The Art of Shaving. You guys know these guys. They've been helping guys look their best since 1996. The Art of Shaving has your total routine covered. Shaving, beard maintenance, hair, skin, body, or fragrance. They've got award-winning products formulated with the highest quality botanical ingredients featuring pure essential oils. Those are the best oils. The Art of Shaving offers a convenient replenishment service, which means, as you know, you're a smart Recode Media listener, that means they send the stuff to you so you don't have to worry. My listeners get 15% off their first order and free shipping by using the promo code MEDIA. To get this offer, go to theartofshaving.com. Use my special promo code MEDIA. That gets you 15% off your first order and free shipping. Or you can go to one of their many stores. You see them all over the place. They've got a cool vibe. They will treat you well. Tell them we sent you. Thank you, Art of Shaving. I'm back here with Ryan Holiday, who is a master marketer, author, stoic. We can explain what that means. I want to talk about the earlier part of your career. We mentioned mm -hmm. a bit of it uh, when you worked for American Apparel. You had a successful run there or semi-successful run or su successful, right? How successful we, for me. Successful run. And then you started writing about your work as a marketer and, and it changed, achieved a lot of notoriety in part for this book called Trust Me, I'm Lying, Confessions of a Media Manipulator, in which you then told people about a bunch of things you did at, at American Apparel that basically that uh, – what's the right word for this? Hoaxed people? 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, you a told number people of things that weren't true and crazy sort of you could call it gray hat or black hat marketing. This this is for American Apparel, and then later for yourself, you passed yourself off as an expert and got the New York Times and ABC and MSNBC to believe you. In a lot of places, that would sort of get you disbarred if you could be disbarred from the media. You yes. can't because yes. anyone can do it. No, look, I'm here doing it right now, and and so you sort of disavowed some of that now, right? Well, so look, I, I worked for a number of really controversial clients. And sort of did what is required there, or how that works. And then I wrote, I was writing a book about media manipulation. Well, you can work for a controversial client and, and not do things that are unethical. Sure. My point is, uh, I did controversial, provocative, inflammatory marketing for these clients, and then I was writing a book about not just what I did, but how that system works. Because I, I'm, a, I like writing, and that's what I'm interested in. Uh -huh. And then as part of that, I, I was thinking. I want to really show people how this works. So I, uh, I used Help a Reporter Out, which I think is probably the most embarrassing open secret in media, and pretended to be an expert to Explain show. what Help a Reporter Does that exist? Oh, yeah. Yeah, people uh, Someone else just did the exact same thing that I'd done, this comedian who was pretending to be a millennial, but he was like 50 years old. I don't know if you read about this. No. Uh, but anyways, you know, it's not like I gained – I, I wasn't pretending to be a fake source so I could boost my resume. I mean, I was pretending to be – a source to illustrate the absurdity of this system, which I then revealed in an article. So it's weird how things can get twisted and they like a narrative can be created. You know, the point was to it's like in the way that a hacker might hack into something and then show how they hacked uh, through a back door. That's what I was doing in that specific instance. It is interesting, right? Because there are people who do media hoaxes and there's a certain part of the media intelligentsia that loves them, right? Yes. Andy Kaufman. The Yes Men. Uh, whoever does Nathan for you, Nathan mm -hmm. so-and-so, right, where they manipulate the media and they get NBC News to to run video of a fake video they made. Mm -hmm. of, I don't know, it was a duck or something. Yeah. And everyone goes, oh, that's amazing. Pig rescue or something. Pig, yeah. pig rescuing yeah. a duck or yeah. duck rescuing a pig. I think Brian Williams ran it. They don't have the same love for you. Sure. Well, it's, it, it hits a little less close to home, I think. I mean, the fundamental vulnerability of journalism is that it is dependent on sources. And the average person is not aware of just how little vetting goes into the checking of sources, especially in a very fast-paced, online-driven media environment. So that was one of the contentions of the book. And the second contention was, and this was another stunt I did for the book, was how dependent the media is on other elements of the media, even though they know there are different standards for different types of media. So when the book came out, for instance, I just put out a put out a rumor that the book had sold for a half a million dollars, which it hadn't. When you say put out a rumor, you, you wrote it, right? Uh, I, or did you I, tell someone that? I, we announced that it was a major deal which is a loose term in the publishing industry. And then someone said, uh, I got a, uh, an email from Gawker and they said, uh, we heard that you got a half a million dollars for your celebrity tell-all. Here's the quote. I would grossly exaggerate the size of my book advance in a press release. That's mm -hmm. you, you typing it up. The press release is a one, in, in the publishing industry is a one-sentence thing in right. uh, publishers' market. Right, but you, so you put out a number? I put out uh, – no, I did not put out a number. I, I put out a major deal. Um, which is, a again, a loose term for uh -huh. range. And then when they asked me if it was for $500,000, I denied it. I said no comment, and that was enough for Gawker to write, Ryan Holiday got $500,000 for a Dove Charney tell -all. So the line for you is you're not going to outright lie. 
Uh, you're gonna walk I mean, up to you're I gonna walk up to the edge and not dissuade someone from writing something that's not true. I mean, look, you're, no one's gonna give me credit for not lying worse than I did, uh-huh. but I certainly could have. Right? The the point to me was to illustrate the absurdity of this system. Look, that story is still up on Gawker and hasn't yeah. been retracted five years later. So it's interesting to me that I need to defend myself. I don't present myself to uh, the general public as a reliable media outlet. So to me, that's the that's the problem, and I do find your in, your distinction between what I do and other you know manipulators. Or, I, I do find that distinction interesting. I mean, one thing that's different, right? I mean, is that you're in the marketing business today, and presumably you want people, you want me to take you seriously, you want the people who are going to read this book to take you seriously. Do you regret doing this stuff five, six years ago? Would you have done it differently looking back? Yeah. I mean, look, I was 21 when I started at American Apparel. And I think there's a – like when I look at the alt-right, let's say, I relate to what they are doing in the sense that they are focused very much on playing a game and winning a game and not – and thinking much less about the implications and the consequences of that game for themselves ethically and personally and for the world around them. And look, I didn't have to – I could have made more money not writing a book than writing a book about that topic. I wrote a book and I talked about the things that I did because I saw where it was going and where it was going is where we are right now. So do you disavow that stuff now or it is what it is and – it's it's I, like I get that question a lot. Yeah. I don't I don't have an answer in the sense that uh, you know I think every like I I like where I am now and I think I'm a different person and I've learned a lot. But I also relate to where I was at that time. That you know what I mean. I, uh-huh. I was I wasn't thinking about it. Is the answer? So uh, there's two great quotes here I've, I found. Uh, one's from a Time story from I guess last year. He's like a snake oil salesman who swears he has abandoned snake oil but not the highly effective sales tactics. And here's one from uh, Craig Silverman, who was a pointer. Now he's at BuzzFeed. This is from earlier. This is, I think, when the book was coming out. He has a point to make, but he's like the addict warning of the dangers of drugs, all the while snorting a line and shaking his head at how bad it is. Yeah, Craig had another line that I always thought was interesting. He said, Ryan is showing how the sausage is made, but do you want to hear about it from... The guy who crapped in the Yeah, and I I thought, uh, yeah... Who who else would you like? Would you rather not hear about it from them? So look, the, I'm not saying uh, that I'm the perfect narrator or source for the book, but what you can't tell me is that that book wasn't right and wasn't very much ahead of its time. And look, if the became, cleaner version is someone like Craig Silverman or myself, whoever sure. goes and interviews people like you and writes the book, and our hands are clean sure. theoretically, and we say we expose their dirty secrets behind. But you're saying, look, no, the real book is get the criminal. Yes. To tell you how he broke into well, the look, house. I've read all those books. I've read Craig's book, uh, The Regret the Air. It's very good. But here's the thing. Those books sold very few copies, uh-huh. and they reach very few people who are not outside the system. The point uh, – like outside the media system in some way. My book not only uh, you know, sold uh, quite well to a, a large group of you know, people who don't normally read books of media criticism, but it's now taught in journalism schools because, hey, there's a – 23-year-old on the cover or whatever, not uh, an old journalism professor lecturing them about, you know, the Cheerios test or whatever. Here's my boss and partner and friend, Kara Swisher, with a word from another sponsor. To build the kinds of things developers want to build today, they need better tools. That's why Amazon Web Services built Amazon Aurora. It's a relational database engine that's compatible with MySQL and PostgreSQL. 
and it provides up to five times the performance of the standard MySQL on the same hardware at a tenth of the cost. Amazon Aurora from AWS can scale up to millions of transactions per minute. It automatically grows your storage to 64 terabytes, that's a lot of terabytes, and it replicates data to three different availability zones. You don't have to manage a thing. There are no upfront charges, no commitments. You only pay for what you use. Check it out at aurora.aws. Thanks, Kara. One of the other things you do uh, when you're not doing marketing is you talk about stoicism. Am I describing it correctly? Is stoicism a thing? Or, or? Stoicism yeah, is, is an ancient thing. philosophy. Ancient philosophy, it. which you are now presenting as sort of modern self-help philosophy. I wrote a book called The Obstacle is the Way, which took – Ancient Stoic philosophy, which is what I'm personally fascinated by and interested in. I'm a complicated person, I'll admit. And I illustrated it with modern stories and historical stories to bring it to a wide audience. So let's let's try let's I mean you. Uh, why don't you explain what Stoics were, who they were? Yeah. So before Stoics, we get to how it works now. Yeah, Stoics uh, Stoicism is is most popular in ancient Rome. Uh, Marcus Aurelius is the probably the most well-known practitioner. Gladiator. The old guy that Joaquin Phoenix kills. Actually a a profoundly great man who writes a book called Meditations. It's the most powerful man in the world writing notes to himself, not ever thinking they would be published. It's the practice of Stoic philosophy that he's doing there. And uh, my definition of Stoicism, the sort of mass definition. Back then it meant what? It's a philosophy of inner discipline, uh, managing one's emotions, of accepting all the things that are outside of our control. You know, Epictetus, the Stoic philosopher, says our chief task in life is to distinguish between what is in our control and what is not in our control. That's the essence of Stoic. I got to say, Wikipedia is not helpful on this. Um, You need need someone to explain this in English. And then I asked my friend Helen, who who knows stuff, to explain what this stuff meant. She goes, well, she she said the Stoics were one of two major Mm post-Aristotelian philosophical schools. The other is the Epicureans. And then I kind of dropped off because to me, Epicureans food. There's probably two – Epicureanism and Stoicism are probably two of the most perverted words in the English language. You know, the Epicureans were supposed to be about the, – the word now means that you're obsessed with pleasure and the Stoics mean you have no pleasure or emotion right. at all. In fact, these were robust, practical schools of philosophy that taught people how to live meaningful, helpful lives. All right. So we'll posit that if you actually know about the Roman Stoics – you're probably going to take umbrage with a big part of this conversation. And I can't help fact check this since okay. I know nothing. But so the relevance to the Stoics today is what? Well, the Stoics have always been relevant through through history. Uh, great artists and leaders and people have read the Stoics. I mean, uh, General Mattis carries a copy of Marcus Aurelius with him where, wherever he goes. So it's, it's always been this sort of uh, tool of people who are dealing with stress and responsibility and leadership. So it's it's not like I What's the central this. tenet of the philosophy that appeals to a Mattis or someone because this is now popular in Silicon Valley, it right? Is. Tim Ferriss is a mm-hmm. fan, Kevin Rose is a fan. I did uh, Kevin's so podcast a couple of days ago. What's about this the th- what's the through line here that appeals to, and it seems like it appeals to men? There's a male element. The problem is there's no real great feminist uh, female Stoics, although Beatrice Webb, who invents collective bargaining, was uh, obsessed with Marcus Aurelius. Mm-hmm. There are no great historical Stoics just because of you know the sad reality of history. But uh, the through line is I would say uh, Stoics, the Stoics say basically you don't 
control what happens to you. You control how you respond. Or there is no good or bad. There's just what we tell ourselves. Not moral good or bad. There's no positive, negative. There's just this, what we tell ourselves. So it's, a, it's sort of a, a, a philosophy of radical pragmatism and self-agency that is very much aligned with the military or entrepreneurship or, you know, the, the, the artistic life, I think. Does that make sense? Military tech, I got artistic life harder to figure out, but I, I get the notion that it this what comes through to me reading this mm -hmm. stuff, and uh, there's a stoic website. Are you involved in that? Yeah, that's your site. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. It's practicing sort of self reliance, and you can't control what comes at you, but you can control your response. Yeah. And I can see the appeal if you're in the military, if you're in politics, if you're in sports, if you're in tech and entrepreneurial in business and you would like to imagine succeeding at these things, mm -hmm. you say, well, my enemies are coming at me or the elements are coming at me and that's going to happen. Yeah. And I'm going to single-handedly sort of swat them away or deal with it or I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to turn a disadvantage into an advantage. I can see the appeal. I harder to understand how that applies to the arts. Oh, I mean, it's probably the Seneca, one of the great Stoics is the most famous Roman playwright uh, of his day. There's a line of, from Seneca graffitied on a wall in Pompeii. Um, but uh, Emerson is a huge fan of the Stoics. Ambrose Bierce, who's one of my favorite writers, he, would, uh, he was obsessed with the Stoics. Uh, Eugene Delacroix, who paints uh, Liberty Leading the People, uh, he said Stoicism was his religion. So it, it's, it's, a, it's an art, Montaigne, you know, it, there's a vulnerability to Stoicism too because it's saying, I don't control that. I'm going to accept it. You know, there's a there's a you're accepting that the world's an unfair place, or that people are going to do you ill, or that your enemy is lined up against you on the field. No, no. But if if like if you read Meditations, it's a deeply vulnerable book uh -huh. about loss, about pain, about um, you know the fact that other other people are flawed, that you can't go expecting perfection. You know, he says you, you can hold your breath till you're blue in the face. They're still going to keep on doing it. So it's it's not a it's not simply a rah rah. I'm gonna I'm gonna you know the Stokes talk about the will, the discipline of the will, but it's not the same as the modern take on willpower. To them, will is about assent, and the, the, the Stokes talk about the art of acquiescence, uh, sort of an embracing and a loving of even bad things that happen to you. So it's not simply strategy for Tom Brady is my point. It's also for Epictetus is a slave. Uh, so so it's, it's for normal, ordinary people dealing with the realities of life as well. What is the connection between stoicism and dunking yourself in freezing water at 5 a.m.? Kevin Rose was talking about that. Mm -hmm. Tim Kendall, who's the president of uh, Pinterest, we just wrote about him. He does this. This mm -hmm. is sort of a trendy thing right now. I think, Did yeah. the Stoics dump themselves in ice water or so, is this a logical step from that? So, so we have no evidence that they took cold showers, uh -huh. but I think they would likely have been a proponent of it. What they, were, what they did talk about is, is training yourself for difficulties. So you know, Seneca is one of the richest men in Rome in his time, and he would practice poverty like one day a month. The, the idea was to become the, – their, their thinking is that anxiety and fear are mostly rooted in unfamiliarity and – uh, a desire to control things that are outside of your control. So, you know, if you're worried about being poor, well, what is it actually, if you're worried about losing all your nice things, can you familiarize yourself with what life is like without those things and go, oh yeah, it's like how it used to be for me. Does that make sense? So it's, it's the cold water would just be a proxy for 
anti-civilization or just you know like like not soft is it the idea that life. i'm gonna i'm gonna steal myself when the shit comes down i can really take it or look i'm exceptionally privileged i drive a tesla um, my life's pretty good and it's only going to get better but i should expose myself to hardship to make myself a well-rounded person i think it is the latter obviously it's a philosophy of which all the inventors are dead so there there's a argument there but i think it's very i think Again, when I said it's this word that's been dealt in injustice by the English language, the word stoic means the former, uh-huh. but in reality, it's the latter. So the cynic in me, the same cynic that says, you know, if a marketing guy is telling you how to do great marketing, he sort of, or a get-rich guy is telling you how to get rich, you wonder why yeah. he's not doing it himself, is the same sort of thinking there. It says, well, maybe instead of dumping yourself in ice water, you should, I don't know, write a bigger check to a local charity or spend more time at the soup kitchen. I realize they're not mutually exclusive. But it seems like there'd be other ways to expose yourself to the, to the world other than, than sort of creating a, or you know, like when you see the guys doing the uh, the mutter yes. ma- marathons, yeah, where you're going through this extreme sport experience, where it seems almost it seems indulgent. Yes, uh, you're, and you're, performative. You're, you're, yes, right. So you're you're causing yourself great pain, but you don't need to, and you're just proving it to yourself, and you're not helping anyone. I think there's value in proving it to yourself, uh-huh. but uh, I would agree that they're not mutually exclusive. I would say to your question, you know, and I get it's. There are so many better ways to make money than to talk to people about an obscure school of ancient philosophy. Actually, it seems like a pretty good way, right? Because it's, it's resonant with a lot of people. Like, uh, but but you, only you're, because you're, I've done an extraordinary amount of work and uh, poured my love and passion into this but thing. You, but you've also found a thing that, that guys in the military, guys in the NFL, because you've talked to the Patriots mm-hmm. about this, right? Seahawks about this. Uh, you talked to Google about this, right? There's mm-hmm. a group of people I'm, that I'm are really saying, responsive to it. I'm just saying I remember when I sold a marketing book to Penguin and I made X and then I went to Penguin. I said, I'd like my next book to be about philosophy. And they said, here's less than half. Uh-huh. You know, that's that's the reality of where it was in 2012. Yeah. Where it is now is very different. So I could have written, I could have been a marketing guru, but I chose to do this because it's what I care about. But um, the, look, the Stoics would, would say, you know, your dichotomy between, you know, whipping yourself to toughen yourself up and helping other people. The Stoics would very much say that is the second part that's more important. They would say, we're you know, Marcus says, uh, what injures the hive injures the bee. He's one of the first Romans to use the the concept of cosmopolitanism, that we're part of this larger whole. Um, so so that's very much part of it. Uh, it's I think it's maybe a little less public and it's a little less easy to write in a blog post. But it's how I try to live my life. Why do you think stoicism is seems to be cresting now, at least in a pop culture sense? Well, historically, it's always tended – I mean, Marcus is at the decline and fall of the – uh, the Roman Empire. George Washington brings Stoicism to America uh, during the American Revolution, the U.S. Civil War. It tends to rise in periods of strife and difficulty because that's when you need these ideas most. That I think that's an element. The world is feels like it's getting more uncertain and difficult than it ever has before. The Stoics would say, of course, it's actually better than it's ever been before. And if you look at it historically, all these things get very small very quickly, but that's the point. It's Marcus Aurelius would love a Tesla. Yes, yes, I'm Teslas sure. Teslas are pretty good. Well, Seneca would like a Tesla. Marcus Aurelius would. Marcus Aurelius famously sold a bunch of the palace furnishings to pay down the the Roman debt. So, is an extraordinary man. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, but your point is, things seem wobbly and yes. uncertain. This this says 
there's uncertainty, but you can you can be in charge of your own actions and reactions. Well, it's what's so amazing in meditations is Marcus is looking back at the other emperors and going, they thought things were bad then. You know, they thought things were falling apart then. He's like, this is the timeless rhythm of history. This is always happening and will always happen. Sort of be grateful for the good stuff you do have. Don't obsess or wallow in worry and fear and anxiety about things that are outside of your control. Focus on the parts that are in your control, which is yourself, your own actions, the people around you, etc. If we think history is about pendulums and things reacting to different things, if we go from uncertainty and stoicism, where do things go in 10 or 15 years? What's the opposite of that? We get to peace and stability and then what? Hedonism? Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know exactly. I, would, I wouldn't try to predict where things are going, but I I do think we tend to, in bad times, really get serious about stuff like this, and then good times come, and then we forget all about them, and then we find ourselves in bad times again. That's the timeless rhythm of history, unfortunately. Okay. Meantime, you want people to buy perennial sellers so they can learn how to sell things, create things that people will read for decades, I would regardless like, of whether they're good or bad. <laughs> I would like them to – I would like to live in a world where people make things – that are focused on a slightly larger timeline because then we would be drowning in less crap. Like I really like books, for instance, because unlike, say, simply online journalism or viral videos, people pay for them and they, they last and they keep. And so you know, I don't like the idea of entrepreneurs writing these like forgettable books and you know, people trying to cash in on trends. I, I, I love the fact that I can read a book that was written by an emperor 2,000 years ago and I, that's what I would like people to make more of. Okay. We'll leave it there. Should we come back like in a year or 10 years? When, when do you want to revisit I do this? end the book that way. I go, look, I could be totally wrong. So let's check in so in a couple me. years and see, uh, see if I've done it. And all I can say is that I won't have quit on the book in a year or five years. What's the next book? The next book is about uh, Peter Thiel and Gawker. Really? Yes. Really? Really. And I assume you're not going to say Peter Thiel's a terrible guy. You want to do a controversial, you want to stand out from the pack. I always want to have a unique take on something. And I do have very strong opinions about what happened. But I am much more interested in how it happened than whether it should have happened. Have you seen the documentary that's on Netflix now? I haven't, but I've talked to everyone on all sides of the... Go eat. So I have two, well, except for Peter Thiel, because he doesn't yes. return my calls. But we just had Brian Knappenberger, who made that documentary yeah, on I, Netflix. Go go watch yeah. it. It's a, good, it's a good hour and a half. Okay. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for talking to I us. I do listen. I, I heard. It's great. Thanks to you guys for listening. Thanks for listening to all the back podcasts. That's the signal to me that you guys are actually listening to this stuff is you go back and you see, oh, someone's listening to something that I made six months ago. That's a, that's a, good, episodes, you mean. That's a good sign. They're free. So you guys know how to listen to all this stuff because you're listening to it right now. Thank you. All we ask is that you tell someone else about it. You can tweet. You can Facebook. Thanks to our sponsors today. We love our sponsors. They help us bring this show to you for free. TransferWise, Upside, Art of Shaving, and Amazon Web Services. Thanks to Digital Media, who sells those ads so we can bring this show to you for free. Thanks to my producers, Beth O'Connell and Eric Johnson, my editor, Chris Basil. This is Recode Media. We'll see you next week.